The Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels written, and it was written much later than any of the other three. It was uh, actually written after the last of the letters to the church. John, at the end of his life, at around age 95 or so, receives the revelation of the end times, what we know of as the book of Revelation. And just about the same time, we're not sure which one came first, but just about the same time, he writes the gospel that bears his name. Now, he's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Ever, those have been widely circulated in the, um, uh, throughout the churches. Everybody has access to them. Same thing's true with the letters that were written to the church from Paul and Peter, both of those pillars of the early church were martyred somewhere around 64 to 66 A.D. So this is a good 30 years maybe uh, after all of the letters to the church were completed. And as I said, these things were widely circulated. They were copied and passed about and so forth. And so when the Holy Ghost inspires John to write the gospel that bears his name to give us eyewitness, firsthand testimony of what it was like to be in Jesus' ministry, to be a part of his disciples. And you remember Peter, James, and John were the inner circle, the, the closest of the disciples to Jesus. It would seem to me that the Holy Ghost to impress upon John to write a The importance, thanks for trying. All right. When John wrote his gospel, I wonder why did we need another one? Now, I don't mean that in a flippant way or certainly not a sacrilegious way. But for the Holy Ghost to inspire John at the end of his life with such a gap in years between when the first gospel was written and the, the one that he wrote, there had to be something that the Holy Ghost wanted to emphasize in a greater way than we already had record of in the first three. Well, if you look at John's gospel, there are a couple of things that stand out, a couple of healing events, a couple of things that took place, a couple of details, really, about Jesus' earthly ministry that the other gospels don't tell us. But for the most part, and you judge this for yourself, but for the most part, it seems to me the difference the most outstanding difference between John's gospel and the others had to do with the last night that Jesus was with them. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke just casually tell us that Jesus had the last supper with his disciples. John goes into great detail about what Jesus said. And primarily the thing that made the difference in what Jesus said that he's testifying to in, in his gospel, the gospel of John, 
is about what he said concerning the Holy Ghost. The 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John cover the night of the Last Supper and the things that took place. And most of that is after Judas has left the room. He's on his way. Of course, the disciples didn't know this. Jesus did. But he's on his way to to sell Jesus out. And it was during that time that Jesus spoke some of these very important truths, very important words about the Holy Ghost, about what things were going to be like after he leaves. So in John chapter 14, verse 16, there are five different statements over the next three chapters. There are five different statements that he gives us information about the Holy Ghost that nobody else does. John, 15, John 14, 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Now, notice he calls him the Spirit of truth. The letters that John wrote to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, have a lot to do with the truth. He bears down on the truth. He speaks of it often or frequently in those letters. And here he calls the Holy Ghost the spirit of truth. Now, folks, John has seen everything that's gone on in the church throughout the first, well, up until the first century, A.D. And there's a lot of things that it, well, let me say it this way. If it was me, if I saw that there were things that needed to be corrected in the church, that's where I'd do it. He didn't. He stuck to the faithful representation of what Jesus was like and what it was to be with Jesus and close to Jesus. And he didn't try to correct anybody. Now, there were a lot of problems in the church. If you look at what Paul talked about and wrote to the church uh, at Corinth, man, those guys were all over the place. He does have to correct them. He does bring some discipline and order to the way that they're operating in their services and so forth. But when the Holy Ghost impressed upon John to write a faithful account, eyewitness testimony of Jesus' earthly ministry, he doesn't waver. There's no getting himself in the middle of this stuff. He doesn't try to take a position that he would be due by being the last of Jesus' disciples on the earth. But again, he gives us information about the Holy Ghost. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. John's the one that's telling us about the twofold work of the Holy Ghost. Nowhere in the other Gospels is it referred to, or even alluded to, with such clarity. Skip down with me to verse 26. Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So the work of the Holy Ghost that he refers to here is reminding us of what Jesus said, reminding of his, us of the things that we had committed, have committed to, to remembrance. He brings those things back to us. Now think about John writing those things. 
He's got 60 years of experience since Jesus has been to the cross. I wonder how many things he's marveled at over the years that the Holy Ghost brought back to his remembrance. Because you know as well as I do, no matter how much you would, um, how faithfully you might be to bringing out details and, and committing things to memory and being reminded of things, there's always something new that'll pop up from time to time that you didn't count on or you didn't think of. I, I'm, I'm that way sometimes with Brother Hagin's ministry and the time that I was with him. The best times, well, for me, everybody doesn't, wouldn't take the same opinion or the same position, but the best times of being with Brother Hagin for me were after services. Not in services. There were great things, great miracles, different things that we saw. The atmosphere and the anointing in, in Brother Hagin's services was greater than anybody's I've ever been in. But the, the real, well, the best times were after the services when he'd be talking to us privately. You see a lot of that with Jesus and the disciples. Some of the most important things that were spoken, some of the greatest teaching that took place were not with the crowds, but with the disciples after the crowds had left. And there are times where I'll remember something will just come to me out of the blue that Brother Hagin said to us or, or talked to us about or something along those lines. And it's like it opens up a whole new room that's been locked and shut away for a long time. I'm sure that's a lot of what was going on with, with uh John and his recounting these things. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now in the Amplified Bible, this word Comforter, in the Greek it's the word paraclete. But the Amplified brings out different characteristics or different aspects of this word comforter and the intent of Jesus providing us with comfort. This word comforter means helper, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, and standby. That's the comfort that the Holy Ghost is, is, has been sent to bring us. And Jesus talks about it in the, from the standpoint of, of care. He says, I won't leave you orphans. I won't leave you abandoned. I'll comfort you through the work of the Holy Ghost. I'm not sure many of us rely on the Holy Ghost or even know why we should rely so heavily on the, so heavily on the Holy Ghost. But the intent is to comfort us, to be our strength when we have none, to always be at the ready as our standby, to be our advocate, to be our intercessor, the one that keeps us connected with God continually. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. I'm ashamed to say this, folks, but I'm way too old to have just started this recently. But it is the way that it is. I have just recently begun to call on the Holy Ghost and expect his help and, and confess his help and the different characteristics and aspects of the Comforter than ever before in my life. And it's changing everything that I do. There's a lot of things that I think we get used to doing and and really kind of expect to do it on our own because we gain experience. But when the Holy Ghost helps you, even in those things you can or might think you can do by yourself, 
there's no comparison. He really is our comforter. We need to rely on that comfort. Look at chapter 16. Verse 13, Jesus said, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, the first place the Holy Ghost is going to guide you is into the truth of the word. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, when he's praying after the Last Supper, and he's praying with the disciples. It's not even yet in the Garden of Gethsemane. But apparently Jesus prayed for a while with them after the Last Supper was over. He said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Folks, God's word doesn't contain truth. It is truth. So he says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, first and foremost into the wonderful things that belong to us as children of God, who we are in Christ and so forth, according to Paul's revelation. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear of that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So we've seen he's going to testify of Jesus. We've seen that he'll teach you. He'll bring all things to your remembrance. But now there's an aspect of revelation that Jesus brings out. He'll show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Skip down with me now in chapter 16 to... Well, where is it? Did I lose it? I've skipped it somewhere. Where did I miss it? John fifteen twenty six. When the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceedeth from the Father. He shall testify of me. Oh, verse 7. It's John chapter 16, verse 7. That's where I skipped it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you, helpful, beneficial. The disciples, then John's the one that brings this out too. The disciples were confused. They were unsteady because Jesus was talking about leaving them and going to the Father. You remember one of them said, I think it was uh, Thomas that said, show us the Father. Or Philip maybe is the one that said, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus tells him, he that's seen the Father, he has seen me that has seen the Father. They didn't know where he was going. They didn't know why he was going to go. They didn't know where he would come back from. But remember Jesus, and again, John's the one that tells us, Jesus clearly taught the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and he would be killed and then raised again the third day. What happened to that understanding? It says that he clearly taught them, not told them in parables, but clearly told them what was coming. How could they be so bewildered? How could they be so unsteady and so unsure? Jesus plainly told them. He taught them. Was there something about the resurrection the crucifixion and the resurrection that they were unable to understand? I don't have an answer for that, folks. And I'm, I'm sure we're not giving them a fair shake because we're always looking from the position of already being saved. 
being children of God, new creatures in Christ Jesus. They certainly were not that until much later. Maybe that had something to do with why they couldn't accept it or why they didn't believe. But he made it so clear for them. So he said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient or helpful or better for you that I go away. They sure didn't think so. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Then again, verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now we're coming back to Paul's letters. And this letter was written certainly before 64 AD. Again, some 30 years before John writes the things that he does. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church who has a a full measure of the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit in operation in their churches. Even though the sin was so great and even though they were all over the place when it comes to lifestyle and, and living right and so forth, the Holy Ghost moved in their church like maybe like nowhere else. Paul talked about how they didn't come behind any good gift. They had every manifestation of the Spirit. And so Paul writing to the church that's got the greatest manifestation of the Spirit talks about the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. This word spiritual gifts, notice the word gifts is in italics. Literally from from the Greek it reads, now concerning spirituals, brethren. Spiritual is in the plural. I would not have you ignorant. Well, what does that mean? That sentence construction wouldn't mean anything to any of us until we realize what the word spirituals mean. The word spirituals in the Greek means those things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So Paul writes and says, now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, I would not have you ignorant. Now somebody explain to me why he wouldn't want them to be ignorant, but it's okay for us to be ignorant. If he didn't want the church at Corinth to be ignorant, he sure doesn't want us to be ignorant either. And so he begins to express or impart knowledge so that they can more fully and accurately and efficiently cooperate with the Holy Ghost. You know that these were Gentiles, you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Folks, that's saying the same thing John told us that Jesus said about the Holy Ghost guiding us into all truth and testifying of him. Now there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Notice he doesn't call them gifts of the Spirit. I know that's the common term among, uh, among the church, the modern day church. But when we think of a gift, we always consider that a gift is under our power and our control. If I give one of my children a car for their birthday or for Christmas or whatever... There's a measure of control that they have over that car because it now belongs to them. 
Well, nobody has gifts of the Spirit in that way. Nobody has a manifestation of the Spirit that's under their control. These things manifest as the Spirit wills. And that's why he calls them manifestations. He doesn't call them gifts in that context. They're manifestations of the Spirit that work according to the will of, of the Holy Ghost. Verse 12, but the, or verse 7, I'm sorry. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Then he gives us a list, a list of nine manifestations, nine different ways the Holy Ghost will manifest himself. Still the Spirit of truth guiding us into all truth, showing us things to come, bringing things to our remembrance. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith. One translation says special faith by the same Spirit. To another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. There are three different places where um, uh, gifts of healings are referred to. And in the original Greek, all three say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. Both gifts and healings are in the plural. There's not a single gift of healing. They're gifts of healings. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, and to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work, thank God they all work, but all these work at that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he willed. Now notice in that list of nine, there are three of these manifestations of the spirit that reveal something. Discerning of spirits, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. There are three of these manifestations of the Spirit that say something. Prophecy, diverse kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And then there are three of these nine manifestations of the Spirit that do something. Gifts of healing, special faith, and working of miracles. So there are three sets of three to make up the full manifestation, the entirety of the manifestation of the Spirit. Let's talk a little bit about the Revelation one. Remember, Jesus said that he'll show you things to come. The Holy Ghost will show you things to come. Now, folks, every one of these manifestations of the Spirit have a public side and a private side. We'll use one that's the most easily understood, I think, for an example. And that is, we know that Paul put great stock in praying in other tongues. He said, I thank my God I pray with tongues or speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my own understanding than 10,000 words in another tongue. So God apparently didn't use Paul in tongues and interpretation in public service as much. His speaking in other tongues was a private thing. Well, we all can relate, those of us that are spirit-filled, we can all relate to the private side of tongues. But right on the other hand, there are those in the church or should be those in the church that have a ministry of tongues and interpretation. In the same way, working of miracles has a public side and a private side. There are those with ministries, miracle ministries, when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation. But you and I, anybody, can take the Word of God and stand in faith on it and receive a miracle, no matter what the circumstances are. All we have to do is find the Word of God and apply it and stand, on, stand firm on it. So there's a private side of miracles too. That's true for all of the manifestations of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost showing us things to come. 
or the revelation manifestations of the Spirit. Those three are discerning of spirits, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 9. Let me show you some of these in operation. This is after Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has to be led by the hand into town because of the, his eyes are blinded because of the reason of the light. He said it was because of the brightness of the light, not some kind of sickness or disease. Beginning in verse 10, Acts chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now notice Ananias is not a minister. He's just a part of the church. He's just a layman. He doesn't have any special place in the church that we have any record of. He's just a believer. And God uses him and brings revelation to him to fulfill his plan and purpose for Saul's ministry, which changed the world. Now the three revelation gifts, revelation manifestations... Discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits means to be able to see, in, see into the spirit realm. That's all discerning of spirits is. Notice it's not discerning of devils. Most of what you see in operation concerning discerning of spirits has more to do with God and angels than it does the devil. A lot of people seem to have the idea that discerning of spirits is discerning of devils. And they think they've got some kind of gift to tell everybody else who, what, what devil they might have or what their problem is. That's not discerning of spirits. That's just immature Christianity. Now another of the, the second of the revelation manifestations is word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a, a supernatural manifestation of certain facts in the mind of God. Word of knowledge is always present tense or past tense. Word of wisdom is a supernatural revelation of the plan and the purpose of God. That has to do with future events. Now, there are all three in operation in this story. First and foremost, notice it says that Jesus said unto Ananias in a vision, called him by name. Any vision would have to be discerning of the spirits. It's seeing over into the spirit realm. Now, there are different ways that that can operate. But remember, Paul wrote to us and said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there were diversities of operations. That means the same manifestation might occur or work different ways at different times. So the first manifestation of the Spirit here is Jesus appearing to Ananias. And notice what he tells him. He says, go into the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Notice it tells him where he is. That's a word of knowledge. How would he know what house Saul was in except that the Holy Ghost revealed it to him? But he tells him where he is. He tells him how to get there. Go to the street called Straight, which is uh, an inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Notice the next part of Revelation. It says, for behold, he prayeth. Now, folks, God knows where everybody is and who's praying where. But a word of knowledge is all that was necessary for Ananias to complete the plan of God. 
So he tells him, Saul's praying. That's a word of knowledge. It's dealing with a supernatural revelation, and this is a supernatural revelation of certain facts that God knows, but he wouldn't know, Ananias wouldn't know otherwise. Notice the next thing in verse 12, and it says, And Saul has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. How would Ananias know that Paul had seen a vision of him, if not by supernatural revelation? Now, this supernatural revelation is intended successfully is intended to give Ananias enough information as to why he is doing what God wants him to do. But notice Ananias is not convinced. Verse 13, Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's revelation concerning the future. That's revelation concerning God's plan and purpose. So you got all three manifestations of the Spirit concerning the revelation manifestations of the revelation gifts as they're commonly called. All three are working together in this one instance. What does that tell us? That tells us that manifestations of the Spirit sometimes work together like the fingers of our hand. Not always, but oftentimes. Now turn with me over to chapter 10. Let me show you another example here. Without getting into the whole chapter, you remember it starts off where Cornelius has a vision. Here's supernatural revelation for him. Well, let's just start in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision. Here's discerning of spirits. He's seeing over into the spirit realm. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, and when he looked on him, he was, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius, Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent her to Joppa. So apparently Cornelius is the only one that saw the angel. Now what does the angel do? The angel tells him that he needs to go find Peter, tells him where he is. Here this, just like in chapter 9, a revelation, supernatural revelation of where the guy is. So he's got discerning of spirits and a word of knowledge in operation already. So he winds up sending men to do exactly what the Lord told him or what the angel told him. Now why didn't the angel just tell him about Jesus and get him saved? Because that's not the job of the angels. The Bible says God has said in, in the church the foolishness of preaching. And that's man's job, not the angel's job. Now in the next dispensation during the tribulation, it tells us about angels flying through the air promoting and pronouncing the gospel of Jesus but not during the church age. During the church age, it's the work of man. 
So continuing on, verse 9, on the morrow as they went up on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened. Here's discerning of spirits. He saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. He knows who the vision is from. But you'll see that he has no clue what the vision means. So he said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done three times. Apparently everything about this is duplicated three times. The same voice, rise, slay, and eat. The same response, not so, Lord. Three different times. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now when Peter doubted in in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. So again, it called it a trance earlier in the chapter. Here it's calling it a vision. Supernatural revelation. But he doesn't know what the supernatural revelation is. He knows what he saw, but he doesn't know what it means. Now when Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. That's supernatural revelation. That's the word of knowledge. Three men seek thee. They're already there. But he didn't find out they were there because somebody came and told him. He knew they were there because the Holy Ghost spoke it to him. So while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now here's the word of wisdom. Showing forth God's plan and purpose. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you are come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee unto this house, and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in, and lodged them. And on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, And Cornelius waited for them. He had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter stood him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with them, him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said, notice verse 28. This is the first time we have information or record that Paul finally figured it out. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He finally figures out that it's not about the meats that we eat. It's a representative of the Gentiles 
and the Jews. And you know the rest of the story. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them at the beginning. They began speaking in tongues and magnifying God. They get saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. But notice how it had to, came, uh, had to come about. Acts chapter 10 is probably about 10 years after Acts chapter 2. So for 10 years, the gospel has been preached in Jerusalem and very little of anywhere else. But here's a supernatural revelation. All three manifestations of, of revelation. Discerning of spirits, word of knowledge, and word of wisdom. All three of these caused the gospel to be promoted and sent out in nearby towns. Now Jesus has already told them. He told them before they were filled with the Holy Ghost to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, tarry ye until you be endued with power from on high. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Ghost, in other words. But now 10 years later after they re have received the Holy Ghost, it takes a miraculous intervention by the Holy Ghost to get the gospel going anywhere else. We do have record that Philip went down to Samaria in chapter 8. But this is the first sanctioned operation of evangelism in the church. Now all of these things worked in the Old Testament with the, example, with the exception of tongues and interpretation of tongues. Those two manifestations of the Spirit seem to be distinctive and exclusive for the church age. But all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Ghost has manifested himself in these ways that Paul lists with the exception of tongues and interpretation. And that would make sense because God never changes. Well, if God never changes, if he's always the same, then the Holy Ghost has to be always the same too, doesn't he? Let's look at some examples in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. Beginning in verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be thy camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once or twice. Do you get what's going on here, folks? The king of Syria is making plans about how he's going to attack Israel. And so he sets these plans in motion. But by revelation, the prophet over in Israel, Elisha, knows what is the enemy king's plans and tells the king of Israel, here's what he's going to do, or here's what he has done. It's not future events. It's not the word of wisdom, because these are things, the way the story tells it, these are things that have already taken place. Apparently the, uh, apparently the Syrians are setting up places where they intend to ambush the children of Israel. But Elisha warns them away several times. Well, as you may well imagine, the king of Syria thinks he's got a traitor in their midst. So it says in verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. 
And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is at Dothan. Therefore sent he their horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city. Let me ask you a couple of things here, folks. Why does this idiot king of Syria think that God wouldn't show him that he's sending people after the prophet? But more importantly in this story for me, look at how God elevated his people, the nation of Israel, through this supernatural working of the Holy Ghost to make his people and to set his people apart from any other people on the earth. Now, has God's attitude or desire for that changed? If that's the way the servants of Israel are the servants of God, the natural descendants of Abraham, if that's the way he wanted them to appear to the world and specifically to their enemies, how do you think God wants us to appear? Everything that happened in Israel was for a type and a shadow or an example unto us. That says to me God wants a supernatural body. He wants the church to be a supernatural church. And he's given the Holy Ghost to accomplish that. Well, if he's given the Holy Ghost to effect that or to accomplish that, why is it not greater than it is? I don't think we rely on the gifts of the Spirit or the manifestations of the Holy Ghost or the work of the Holy Ghost in near the way that we should. I'm reminded of how when Israel went in to take the promised land, the warning was don't when you get all the things and the, the, the goods and the fruit and everything starts working great in the way that it was intended to, don't forget God. I think a lot of times, in a lot of ways, the church has forgotten God when it comes to the supernatural aspect of the Holy Ghost working. Okay, so the king of Israel, or the king of Syria, excuse me, now knows where Elisha is. So he sends horses and a great host of chariots and such. And came by night and compassed the city where Elisha was. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, if Elisha's servant, which is Gehazi, if he runs the numbers on this, he's going to count two against all these chariots and horses that Syria has sent. But notice what Elisha does. Verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Again, I marvel at the stupidity of the king of Syria thinking that if the prophet is aware of the plans that he's making for his army, why wouldn't he be aware of the, the attempt to capture him? And then the story goes on to say that they were smitten. They, meaning the Syrian army, were smitten, smitten with a great blindness and had to be led by the hand into a place which was the enemy, it was Israel's camp. The whole army was captured without a shot being fired, so to speak. 
without a spear being thrown or an arrow being let loose. Turn with me to chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1 it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little little maid, young girl in other words, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10,000 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. And when he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him out of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man does send unto me to recover a man of, of his leprosy. Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes. That was a very um, destructive thing to take place. When he heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why therefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Notice the different attitudes here, folks. The king of Syria thinks this is it. This is a trap. They're just looking for an excuse to invade us, which they wind up trying to do the next chapter anyway. But Elisha says, this is nothing that you should uh, operate in such an undignified manner as to rent or tear your clothes. Send him to me. If that's not a representative of the church, or let me say it this way, I believe that's a representation of what the church should be. Folks, there's so much tiptoeing around that the modern day church does and engages in. We tiptoe around conditions of sickness and disease. We tiptoe around government. Don't rock the boat. Might lose your tax exemption. There's so much of that kind of stuff that the church tiptoes around when we ought to be bold and recognize that our God is God. I've been praying for a long time that God would raise up prophets as in the days of old that would speak to kings and to nations like they used to. There's so much of the church activity that shows the fearful nature of the people of God. And what in the world do we have to be afraid of? If God is who he says he is, why are we the ones that are afraid? I long for a day when the government is afraid of us. I long for a day when policy is made with respect to the power of God in the church. That's the way it ought to be. Not the other way around. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot. And stood at the door of the house of Elisha. 
And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. He goes to Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come outside to see him. He just sends word by one of the servants, Go dip seven times in the river Jordan, and you'll be healed. But Naaman was wroth, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. He had it all figured out, didn't he? Are not Abana and Parfar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more rather then when he said unto thee, when he said unto thee wash and be clean? Apparently they convinced him because he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River according to the saying of the man of God and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now things change. He returned to the man of God, he and all of his company and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee take a blessing of thy servant. Let me pay you. And they, and, but he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Folks, it's not always the right time for offerings. You can't let anybody think, and we certainly shouldn't think this ourselves, that we can buy things from God. That's not the way it works. And Naaman said, shall, I not, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardoneth thy servant that when my master goeth into the house of Remon to worship thee, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Remon. When I bow down myself in the house of Remon, the Lord pardoned thy servant in this thing. In other words, he's saying, even though I'm I have to because of the king, his uh, Lord and his master. Because I have to offer sacrifices to other gods. Know this, my heart's not in it. I'm really only worshiping this God, the God of Israel. And he said unto him, go in peace. And he departed from him a little way. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, behold, my master has spared Naaman and this Syrian in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman said, Be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants and they bare him before them. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house. That means he hid them there. And he let the men go and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? In other words, where have you been? And he said, Thy servant went nowhere. I haven't been anywhere. And the prophet said, 
unto him, Went not my heart with thee when the man turned away, turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy thereof of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper, white as snow. How did Elisha know that Gehazi had gone? Here's the word of knowledge and operation. He, he was aware of what happened. And it seems that he's identifying how it operated. And like I said, these things can operate in a variety of ways. But when Elisha says, my heart went with you, apparently it was some, some type of vision that Elisha received this information as if he was there himself. Now you've got to tell me, why would Gehazi do something like that if he knew that Elisha was used of God to see things that were going on? It's a stupid move on his part, but it tells me something else that might be more important for us to realize. And that is, just because God uses somebody in these things from time to time, it's not always in operation. If it was always in operation, Gehazi would never have taken the chance to get away with it. He assumed, certainly he hoped, wrongly, but at least he must have hoped, that Elisha wouldn't have seen what was going on. Which means it can't be in operation all the time. Now what was the purpose for this? Exposed a hypocrite. This is the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, trying to copy Barnabas' actions, the end of chapter 4 of, of the book of Acts, tells us about how Barnabas sold a piece of land and brought the money to the church and he joined himself to the apostles. Now apparently in Barnabas' case it was a situation where God had called him to the ministry and so he just sold the property and, and uh, broke some of the ties, the earthly ties that he had, financial ties at least, and brought the money into the church because of the ministry God had for him. And you remember what a, uh, an important role he played when he and Paul went on the first missionary journey. Barnabas was probably the main spokesman as, uh, according to the things that we have record of uh, that are written in the book of Acts. Well, Ananias and Sapphira must have seen that and thought that they could do the same thing. So they sold some land, lied about how much it was and lied about how much they were giving to the church. And you remember how the story went when Peter asked him, did you sell your land for such and such amount of money? And Ananias says, yes. Peter questions him and says, why have you lied to the Holy Ghost? He falls dead in church and they go out and bury him. Then several hours later, they're still having church and Sapphira shows up. And the men are just getting back from burying her husband. So Peter does the same thing with her. He asks her, what did you sell the land for? She says, for such an amount of money. And he says, why have you conspired to lie to the Holy Ghost too? She falls dead. And then the burial crew go out and bury her. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I'm glad that kind of stuff doesn't happen in the present day. If lying to the Holy Ghost is instant death, I'm not sure God would have any church left. But the Holy Ghost is in, interested in exposing hypocrites. 
Now, why? Because he doesn't want the wrong people to get in places of influence or authority. And in both cases, supernatural revelation was present. In both cases, it was the word of knowledge. There was a guy, Brother Hagin used to tell a story about a fellow that was pastoring a church in, somewhere in Texas, I believe. And they were doing some remodeling or renovating on the church or something or other. And so the pastor was on the, uh, the roof of the church. They were putting a new roof on, and so they were having to reshingle it and do all that kind of stuff. And so he's up on the roof working. And he said while he was working, the Holy Ghost spoke to him about somebody that was in the church, a man in the church. And he told him that he had gathered together people from the church to try to start a petition to get the pastor removed from his position. So still in the work, his work clothes, he climbs down, on the ladder, climbs down from the roof, drives over to where the Holy Ghost told him the meeting was, goes to the door, knocks on the door. The lady of the house opens the door. He says hello and walks in. The guy is there with about 20 members of the church, 20 influential members of the church who don't know why they're there. He hasn't had time to tell them what's going on yet. And so as the pastor walks into the room, he shares what the Holy Ghost showed him or spoke to him about. And this guy got so flustered, he, brought, he pulls out the petition and said, yeah, that's right. It's right here. I was going to try to get you thrown out of the church. But he fell on his face and said, but if the Lord's telling on me, then this has got to be the wrong thing to do. So here's a supernatural revelation, a simple revelation that saved the church and who knows how many people from being going astray and such. Now remember the Bible says that God confirms his word with signs following. The, see the, the natural reaction or the natural response to these things is for us to say, well, why don't they work like that today? Why don't we see manifestations of the spirit like that today? Well, folks, the Bible doesn't say God confirms what we want to see. The Bible says God confirms what we preach and believe. The more we talk about these manifestations of the Spirit, the more they'll occur. The more we magnify the work of the Holy Ghost, the more the Holy Ghost does. So I'm planning to talk about them for a lot. There's a lot of these manifestations of the Spirit that I don't have much experience in. But I'm willing to learn. How about you? Oh, that we would come to the place where we recognize that we are a supernatural body. We are the body of Christ on the earth. If God's going to do anything on the earth, he's going to do it through his body. Yet I think we hamstring ourselves a lot of times. You know what I mean. We limit ourselves by not relying on the power of the Holy Ghost. Now I know there are people out there that will say, well, we don't have a need for those things because we have so much more. Medical science has developed and linguistics have improved. We don't need speaking in other tongues like we used to or like they did in the early days of the church. But folks, you can never come out ahead by, uh, by substituting something that's natural for something that's supernatural. 
Thank God for the supernatural aspect of the Holy Ghost. We pray a lot for the glory of God. If the glory of God does not include manifestations of the Spirit, revelation from the Holy Ghost, utterance from the Holy Ghost, and power from the Holy Ghost, what do we think the glory of God would look like? God's going to do what He's always done. He's going to magnify Himself or manifest Himself in the same way that the Bible tells us even from the beginning. The difference is we've got the added advantage of knowing that the glory of the last day church will be greater than of the former. We are a supernatural people who serve a supernatural God who have been given supernatural equipment and God wants to manifest himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the precious Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Holy Spirit, we seek your forgiveness for not counting on, for not relying on your work as we should have. Holy Spirit, we ask you to manifest yourself as you see fit and as you will. Magnify the name of Jesus in revelation, in utterance, and in power. Oh, Father, there's an excitement in my heart because I see a glimpse, just a little bit, of what you want to do in your church in these last days. We are your people a holy people, a separated people, a people of power, a people who have been given authority to do the same works that Jesus did when he was here on the earth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for manifesting yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Utterance from the Holy Ghost and power from the Holy Ghost. What do we think the glory of God would look like? God's going to do what he's always done. He's going to magnify himself or manifest himself in the same way that the Bible tells us, even from the beginning. The difference is we've got the added advantage of knowing that the glory of the last day church will be greater than of the former. We are a supernatural people who serve a supernatural God who have been given supernatural equipment and God wants to manifest himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the precious Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Holy Spirit, we seek your forgiveness for not counting on, for not relying on your work as we should have. 
Holy Spirit, we ask you to manifest yourself as you see fit and as you will. Magnify the name of Jesus in revelation, in utterance, and in power. Oh, Father, there's an excitement in my heart because I see a glimpse, just a little bit, of what you want to do in your church in these last days. We are your people a holy people, a separated people, a people of power, a people who have been given authority to do the same works that Jesus did when he was here on the earth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for manifesting yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.